Hello, I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. And from the University of Virginia's Deliberative Media Lab, this is Democracy in Danger. It's been a stunning, horrifying week in America. And all that we've seen confirms, sadly, that democracy really is in danger in this country. So we've decided today to bring you a special emergency episode of Democracy in Danger. We don't have any guests today. It's just the two of us, Will and me contemplating, commiserating, venting, thinking out loud, and maybe, if you're lucky, reaching some sort of insight. Yep, it's just the two of us, Siva, and about 300 students from a University of Virginia course that we are teaching this very week on the topic of this podcast, Democracy in Danger. You know, sometimes things that happen in the real world match up with the things that you're talking about and teaching in the classroom. This has been a chilling week in which our scholarly work on democracy in danger is coming up against the very real domestic terrorism attack that just occurred on January 6th, 2021, um, when a pro-Trump mob attacked the symbol of our democracy, the United States Capitol, and they were egged on by the president himself. And after this, we're gonna walk down and I'll be there with you We're going to walk down, we're going to walk down, anyone you want, but I think right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. Democracy really is in danger in America right now, and we're joined here by hundreds of young students who have a very personal investment in figuring out what's going on and what the future holds. Yeah, we're we're recording this on the morning of January 7th, 2021. Yesterday, January 6th, we saw a rare and somewhat hopeless objection by multiple Republican members of Congress to the usually mundane ceremonial process of counting the electoral votes for president and vice president. What purpose does the gentleman from Arizona rise? I rise for myself and 60 of my colleagues to object to the uh, counting of the electoral ballots from Arizona. This was just one of two events that were direct challenges to American democracy, to the traditions and functions and structures and institutions of American democracy. It was the one that most of the attention was being put on before yesterday afternoon. You know, I think, Sivo, that one of the things that we all together ought to do is in order to try to grasp what happened, let's just go over what we saw. So we saw thousands of rioters, and I'm going to use the word terrorist, and I'll explain why. But I saw lots and lots of rioters, overwhelmingly white, very largely male, wearing symbols of the Trump movement, red hats, Trump flags, white nationalist, alt-right flags. I saw them gathering on the Capitol grounds and then swarming the Capitol, breaching security barriers. I saw Capitol police either overwhelmed, afraid, uncertain, or in some cases I saw Capitol police apparently not doing enough to protect the building of the Capitol. I saw rioters that were euphoric, excited, thrilled with the moment thrilled with a a kind of a bloodlust for breaking into the symbol of our democracy, for penetrating deep into the the heart of that building, 
vandalizing the offices of congressional leaders and staff, eager to take selfies of themselves as they vandalized the building. I saw men in uh, bizarre costumes uh, with uh, weird bear skins and bear chests taking pictures of themselves standing in the well of the House of Representatives and the Senate. And we saw the entire Congress, terrorized, shuffled down into the bowels of the building to a secure location where they would be protected from these rioters, insurrectionists, indeed from these terrorists. I saw all of these things and I'm, I'm trying to, to figure out what they mean. You know, Will, the images we saw on our screens were deeply alarming. I mean, I, I know it shook me to my core. We were, you and I were chatting. Uh, I think it struck both of us that these images, the looks on their faces, the trappings, the flags, the words they were shouting were way too familiar to those of us who lived in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. You know, so not only was this precedented in America, but there was actually direct ample warning of this. We, you know, we know that there was a lot of overt social media chatter by people who were gathering these forces, uh, basically declaring what they were going to do. And the same thing happened before the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in August of 2017. It was no mystery, it was no secret, it was no conspiracy. They were clearly coming to hurt people. They were clearly coming to destroy things. They were clearly coming to mess with American democracy and a sense of American identity. And nonetheless, just like in Charlottesville, the authorities we depend on to protect us seemed unprepared or unwilling, I think that's the way you described it as well, unprepared or unwilling to stand in their way. Siva, let me ask you a question because you've given a lot of thought to this over the, over the last uh, three years. You know, we saw what unfolded in Charlottesville. It was also on national TV. We spent a great deal of time talking about it in the aftermath of 2017. But is it possible that America did not learn the lessons of Charlottesville? I mean, it's more than possible. It's definite. You know, I remember right after it happened, I encountered conversations with well-meaning friends who lived in New York and Boston and Chicago and California, and, and they were insistent on minimizing the national implications of what just happened, insisting that those who invaded our town and beat up our neighbors and killed one of our neighbors um, were such a small part of American society that they could be easily um, bottled up and handled. And that was once true. There was a time not so long ago when white supremacist movements, nationalist movements were um, latent enough or disorganized enough uh, that we could manage them. Uh, that is no longer the case. And the fact that they gathered so audaciously in Charlottesville showed that, you know, while in many ways the the, the fallout of the of the Charlottesville events 
stifled their more immediate and grandiose goals. They sure demonstrated their power. And let, let's remember, Charlottesville was not a one-off. We saw the same sorts of themes, the same sorts of people, the same trappings, the same performance in Kenosha, Wisconsin, just a few months ago. We saw these exact same groups stage this exact kind of assault on the state capital of Michigan in Lansing just last year. And remember, some of those who schemed to take over the capital in Lansing also schemed to kidnap the governor of Michigan. These were all acts of terrorism. They're consistent, they're constant, they're not going away even as President Trump leaves office. This is a absolutely crucial point that I feel so strongly about now and, and, and something that I, you know, I've had to learn. And that is just, let me put it simply, when people tell you who they are, believe them. Yeah. I also want to thank our 13 most courageous members of the U.S. Senate, Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Ron Johnson, Senator Josh Hawley. You know, some of the guests that we've had on the show, Siva, have taught me this. Uh, Kathleen Ballou, Cynthia Miller-Idris, they have, they have said, look, the white power movement is decades in the making, and it is a movement, and they are in touch with each other, and they know what they're doing, and they share common texts, um, white supremacist texts. They are talking to each other. They're coordinated. They have a plan. And it's not as if we've had to uncover this. They have told us this. Right, right. So when people tell you who they are, believe them and then prepare. So when you see the Capitol Police um, with just a, a few people and a couple of uh, little bike racks uh, defending the symbol of democracy, you have to ask yourself, what could explain that? Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> In fact, I'm very hostile to conspiracy theories. But it looks as if uh, there was a failure of leadership, but more important, maybe even some who did not in the Capitol Police who might have felt that these were not really dangerous people. And it turned out that they were. Can I just say one thing, though, before we get too far into this, because I think this is important, too. Let's talk about words. Words have power and meaning. And there are, there are three words that I want to put on the table and I want to use. And I think we should not be afraid of using. One is terrorism. Now, terrorism is a word that people are afraid of using because it suggests the kind of attacks of 9-11. But actually, terrorism is using unlawful violence for political ends. That's all it is. Unlawful violence for political ends. That's what we saw yesterday. That was terrorism. A second word is coup. Now, we don't even have a good word in English for coup d'etat. But a, a coup means a blow, a strike, and a strike on the state, a coup d'etat. Was yesterday a coup d'etat? Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But here's, a, here's another way of thinking about it. And we talked about this with Federico Finkelstein. The, the self-coup, the autogolpe, the, the, the notion that you've come into power at, through the ballot box, but now you want to strengthen your hold on power by attacking the legislature, using force to attack the legislature, and create yourself I into a strongman or dictator. I believe yesterday was a failed self-coup. I think we can call it a self-coup, but it hasn't succeeded, but I believe it was fully intended to so intimidate the legislature that it would overthrow an election. And then the last word I want to talk about is fascism. Now, people don't like to talk about um, Donald Trump and fascism in the same breath. They're afraid to do it because it's too explosive. It's too extreme. It seems unbiased. Well, you know, there are times when you have to call things as they are, and it takes courage to name things. It really does. It's uncomfortable. You're going to lose friends. And people are going to say, you're an extremist, you're overreacting. But in every conceivable sense, uh, we are witnessing the enacting of fascist political behavior by the president. They want it back. All Vice President Pence has to do is send it back to the states 
to recertify. And we become president, and you are the happiest people. There is a cult of personality. There is the abandonment of democracy. There are the symbols, the oaths, uh, the flags, the hats, the uniforms. There is the glory of combat and of fighting and violence. There are the conspiracy theories designed to create an alternative reality. There are the loyalty tests. Pence, Mike Pence, the vice president, failed them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rudy Giuliani, he, he passed them. Right. Um, and if you had four more years, you would see a far greater and far more extreme version of all this being enacted. Yeah, I can't argue with that, Will. Uh, and and in terms of the self-coup, basically this, the same sort of thing happened successfully in Peru a while ago. Uh, and we've seen elements of this around the world. And it's at this moment where you have this sort of hybrid version of authoritarian democracy, illiberal democracy, where someone can, as you said, come into power through the legitimate or quasi-legitimate uh, um, processes of democracy by firing up the populace or at least a, a populace big enough to take over. We have saw it with Viktor Orban in Hungary. We saw it in Poland. We saw it with Narendra Modi and the BJP in India. Uh, we saw it with Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. Uh, you know, in terms of the symbols, I mean, the symbol that, that says the most that I think we saw cutting the deepest yesterday is the Confederate flag. Not so long ago, the Confederate flag was, uh, you know, politely accepted weirdly in much of America. It was not seen as a symbol of racial violence, of racial oppression, of hatred, a symbol celebrating the enslavement of human beings. But, you know, we're, we're steadily coming to see it that way, fortunately. More and more of us are coming to see it that way. States have abandoned the various trappings of the Confederacy in recent years, I think appropriately. But yesterday, a man strolled through the United States Capitol bearing the Confederate flag, waving the Confederate flag proudly. And my first thought was, not even Robert E. Lee managed to get that flag into that building. Like there was a war to try to get that flag into that building and it failed. I mean, how did we get to this point? How did we get to this point? Help me out, Will. Yes, Donald Trump transformed the Confederate flag from a, an awkward, angry symbol of hate into a rallying cry for the, for the far right, for white supremacy in this country. There is no one in the world that can look at that flag and say, well, it's just a symbol of heritage. After all, my great-grandfather, et cetera, et cetera. Don't be conned by that. Don't be conned by that. It has been transformed into a symbol of hate, and it's doing political work when it's shown in that context. You know, I think that I, I was sitting there watching uh, all this unfold on, on multiple TV channels and following Twitter carefully for about you know, too many hours yesterday. And the question, one question in the back of my mind was, how would I write the history of this? How, how am I going to write about this when I am you know, much older and can have some perspective on it? And I, I'll just throw this out there. Uh, maybe this will help others try to answer that question. One of the ways we write history is by reasoning through comparison. Are there other cases where we can see some of the same um, uh, examples of, of force and white supremacy and so forth? And of course, there are attacks on democracy. You know, Mussolini's march on Rome in 1922 when fascists threatened to overthrow the government and almost stormed the capital, but they didn't have to because the king actually allowed Mussolini to become a prime minister without violence. What about Hitler's Beer Hall Putsch, the failed coup in 1923, when he was a nobody, he literally tried to take the Bavarian government hostage. And for 24 hours, he did. But it failed, and he was arrested, and he went to jail. 
What about Vichy France? You know, France in World War II was a collaborationist right-wing uh, government that worked closely with with Hitler. How did that come about? Was is that like what we've just gone through? It's it's similar but but different. But here's the thing: I finally come to feel that none of those is accurate, none of those is apt, and that we have all the comparisons that we need right here in our own country. Mm. This was a distinctively American event. For the first 250 years of this country, from 1619 up until 1863, this was a slave-owning society. Never forget that. Never forget that. That is in our DNA. For the 100 years after the Civil War, this was a Jim Crow society. This was a society that insisted on white supremacy and segregation by act, by custom, by law, by habit, by terror, through lynching, um, through brutality, through assassination and murder. That, that society ran for a hundred years up through the civil rights movement and only briefly in the 1960s, the 1970s, and maybe arguably in the early 80s, this country said, no, we're going to leave it behind. Yeah. But ever since then, probably from the mid 80s onward, we have been seeing a backlash against the civil rights movement. And that is the, that is the moment we are in. Donald Trump, say what you want about his, his own ideas, he is actually in conversation with the legacy of Jim Crow, white supremacy, segregation, and yes, I'll say it, the Ku Klux Klan. I really believe he is in conversation with the legacy of the Klan, using brutality and calls to white supremacy to impose a certain kind of racial order. That's what he said. Yeah. That's what he's done. When people tell you who they are, believe them. I mean, he's built his whole career on that, too. Remember, he, he and his father made their early fortunes by trying to create uh, segregated housing. Uh, they were they were busted by the federal government, by the Justice Department for uh, discrimination in housing uh, uh, with their public housing projects. Right. So they were taking money from the government and uh, discriminating against African-Americans uh, systematically. They got busted for that in the 1970s. And Donald Trump has never hidden his agenda, his feelings about black people uh, and uh, and about Latinos and about uh, immigrants in general, even though he's married a couple of them, right? I mean, it's really important for us to emphasize here, nothing we're describing is a conspiracy. It's all out in the open. They are waving their flags, right? This is not happening in secret. Uh, you know, it's not sneaking up on us. You just have to look around and you see how different forces and ideas and agendas have found each other in recent years. They're empowered in ways they have not been in your lifetime or my lifetime. Uh, they are bolder than they have been in our lifetimes. They're angrier than they've been in our lifetimes. Siva, let me ask you a question and, and let's think about this out loud. Um, you said they're bolder than ever. And indeed, all the reporting was that the the um, the attacks yesterday led to a kind of euphoria. And as people were ushered gently out of the Capitol, um, they were euphoric about their victory, their triumph, their success. This is a moment in which we're at an inflection point. We can decide to um, say, well, gosh, that was a mistake. Too bad that happened, but we'll be fine. The institutions of democracy will hold. Gee whiz, democracy is messy, um, but, but let's turn the page. Or we can say, no, we have a real obligation. If In order to save democracy, we have to show those people that they didn't win, that they lost. How can we have accountability? What needs to happen? Oh what, my gosh. what should be the next, uh, should there be next steps? Um, what, what, what would you do if you were the attorney general um, tomorrow? Uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm just trying to think about what are the appropriate tools available to us? And more important, are they 
are they important to our society and, and why, you know? I mean, I think the worst thing we can do is um, forgive without a full accounting, without a full, deep analysis, without venting our own frustration in a nonviolent way, right? In a civil way, a civically engaged way. We have to push our leaders. We have to push the next president, the next attorney general, all of our leaders in our state capitals, in our national capital, to remember January 6th, 2021, and make sure it never happens again. Get to the root of it. Understand that this is going to be with us for a while. And just because Donald Trump will fade into his Twitter feed doesn't mean that the people who have been energized and encouraged by him are going to think any differently about him or the world. They're going to be just as disgusted, right? So what do we do about it? Well, look, you know, when I woke up this morning and I read that by 3.30 a.m. Eastern time, Congress had been able to finally do what they had assembled to do yesterday, which was to put a stamp on the count of the electoral votes and ensure that, yes, what we've known since November 4th, that Joe Biden will be the next president and Kamala Harris will be the next vice president in just about two weeks from where we're, when we're recording now. And I thought, you know, well, some people are going to see that and say, hey, the, the, uh, the nutcases who broke some windows lost, right? Just like after Charlottesville, hey, they lost. What are you worried about? Everyone's appalled. What are you worried about? And then we're going to pretend that everything went back to normal and we can just move on and we can just find the people on the other side of the aisle who seem not so crazy. And I, I just want to, I agree with, I agree with your analysis, Siva, and I want to echo it by um, just, I'm no 19th century historian, but, but I happen to be married to one. And she is always telling me that, you know, reconstruction was the, is a great tragedy in American history, that um, there was an opportunity to, to reconceptualize our democracy and we failed. And there were lots of reasons why we failed, and it wasn't for lack of trying, but at the end of the day, Americans didn't have the stomach for continuing to wage the Civil War after the battle was, was over. We did not have a political reckoning. We did not have adequate uh, imposition of democratic rule throughout the defeated southern states. And what happened was the white South and the white North agreed that they would shake hands um, and that they would join together in creating a new kind of segregation. And they buried, they buried the hatchet in the backs of the black people of the United States. Yes, and that re reconstruction failed and we did not have the reckoning we needed and instead we had a century of Jim Crow. So I think the stakes are enormously high right now. And we have, we have, I, I, with all the fiber of my being, I believe we need a, a confrontation. Yeah. We need arrests, we need trials, we need evidence, we need courtroom proceedings. Um, uh, to to understand what happened. Yeah. And look, your job and my job is different going forward. Maybe it's not so different. Maybe it just means we have to do it with a higher level of energy and urgency. And that is to make account of what just happened. And by just happened, I mean the last five years. But him, President Trump, exiting our public life or receding from our at least public institutions doesn't change the fact that we have some deep maladies, not only in this country, but around the world. This is not just an American problem. This is a, a particularly American set of moves and images and, and, and claims that we see flowing around us. And, and certainly it's embedded deeply in American history, but we're not the only country going through these convulsions right now. 
Um, so I think that's important too. And, and I think we have to appropriately uh, look to uh, other places in the world that are experiencing these sorts of crises of faith as crises of democracy. Maybe learn from them, maybe help them. We're not alone in this. At the same time, so much of what we're seeing takes on a particularly American character, as you said. Well, Siva, we are in the company of some really bright young people, and it is their future that we're talking about, not so much ours. And uh, we have an opportunity to hear from some of our students who have obviously significant concerns, but also some really sophisticated ideas and questions. And the first uh, student we're bringing on is uh, Meg. Meg, welcome to Democracy in Danger. Thanks for having me. So last night, our reading was from How Democracy Dies. And I actually read it before I found out what was going on. So I read it and then I, I turned on the TV and I was like, well, I just read about this in our homework. Um, and it was just so amazing because it talked about guardrails of democracy. And it was talking about how in the United States, we have two things that really protect our democracy. One being um, shared codes of conflict and institutional forbearance. And they went in to yeah. describe those things and how they have protected American democracy and how those things have been eroding, I would say since 1968 with the birth of political polarization, you know, looking at your political enemy or rival as an enemy, and then the acceptance of political tricks as being okay. And I think that yesterday was just another example of those guardrails being worn down. So Do you see that as a problem? And then how can we repair those two guardrails, which were so important in that chapter? Oh, and thank you for giving us that assignment. (laughs) Well, I wish we could take credit for being prescient. We're we're actually not that good a set of professors to have anticipated the right reading for the right day in history. Uh, Now, look, in terms of the guardrails in democracy, um, some of them are institutional Some of them are normative, right? Cultural. Some of them are about public beliefs, how we trust each other, um, how we uh, just accept that people are going to follow the rules or at least follow the habits of democracy. And one of the things we have seen somewhat suddenly in this country is the stripping away of those norms. And you're right to go back before Donald Trump. Uh, I tend to focus a lot on the 1990s in terms of the stripping away of the norms and expectations of democracy. That was, uh, I, I often point to the um, uh, the impeachment process of Bill Clinton, which was a rather explicit attempt to undo an election at the time, uh, an unsuccessful attempt, one that did not involve mass public uprisings. Uh, it just involved some internal machinations um, and prosecutions. Nonetheless, it was uh, a proof of concept for people who were not happy about democracy, uh, and we've seen it flow from there. How do we rebuild it? We call it what it is, right? We start with exactly what Professor Hitchcock was trying to do earlier. Um, Invoke the appropriate words, um, speak them firmly, uh, challenge those who want to deny it's that big a problem, 
and argue that out, right? And then once we get some sort of consensus, we generate consensus about the, the nature of the threats to democracy, we come up with an agenda on which to act. And that might mean criminal prosecution of uh, a few of the troublemakers, but it, it just as importantly means rebuilding trust in everyday life through our civic institutions, through our libraries and schools, our, our churches, our coffee houses, our, our, our bars, our, our barbershops. You know, that's where democracy should happen. Uh, and one of the problems we've had in recent years is we move too much of that everyday political activity to Facebook and Twitter. And uh, I have a lot to say about that that I'll save for now. But, you know, just know that it's just not built for that. Meg, you, you asked such a sophisticated question, and, and we don't have all the answers, but I'll just say that um, what are the consequences of breaking the guardrails? I mean, that right there is a question that we have to come to an agreement on. That should be our most urgent um, priority, is deciding whether or not we believe there should be consequences for not just bumping up against the guardrails, but literally getting out your your jackhammer and digging them out of the ground and throwing them down into the abyss, because that's what's happening. The guardrails are being destroyed. Yeah. And 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 we have to decide if we care. I mean, if we if we don't care, then then we don't get to have guardrails. There are a lot of places in the world that never built their guardrails strongly enough. Uh, I mean, I think we all think about Russia quite a bit, and and Will and I watched a lot of what's happening in Russia unfold over the last few decades. Uh, we were both much younger when uh, the Soviet Union fell apart, uh, but we were both pretty plugged into what was going on over there. And one of the things that occurred to me yesterday, and I was texting with Will about this, is, is uh, you know, in a perverse way, it reminded me of an event in 1991 when some communist leaders tried to undo the democratic installation of the elected president, Boris Yeltsin, uh, by taking over the Duma, the parliament building in Moscow. And then Boris Yeltsin, who uh, this was back when he actually had like an ability to be a, a savvy and inspiring leader, um, led a popular uh, demonstration that was able to retake the Duma. Uh, and it was kind of the opposite of what we saw yesterday. It was a it was a popular uprising to install democracy, not to undermine democracy. But what happened in in Russia is quickly after that moment, um, they rushed to establish all of the external trappings of democracy and built none of the internal soul of democracy, the norms, the civic trust. And that's ultimately what we depend on to make democracy work. That's a great segue, Siva, because you've gotten into the international um, ripple effects of what happened uh, on January 6, 2021. And a student named Casey is going to join us. Uh, Casey, welcome to Democracy in Danger. Thank you so much for having me. I think it was really awesome that you were able to tie it directly into my question, um, which was, I know a lot of people, myself included, were watching Twitter, watching all these reactions as the events in the Capitol unfolded. Um, and these reactions were both domestic and international. We've seen many foreign leaders and allies to the United States, like Chancellor Angela Merkel of Germany, condemn these acts of terrorism, react with horror. So my question to you both is, how do you feel these events at the Capitol will impact the image of American democracy internationally? And what do you think is the future of United States democracy and foreign policy in light of these recent events in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, I, I, uh, I think this is a brilliant question, and I hope you um, one day become Secretary of State, because I think you have exactly the right framework for understanding the challenge of repairing our 
place in the world. Look, if there was one moment that just I felt like a hand reached out from the television and just slapped me across the face, it was when I heard that uh, the president of Turkey, Erdogan, was, um, was offering his condolences for the collapse of our democracy. Because this is a moment of pure irony, and clearly Erdogan was just savoring every moment of it. What was happening there? This was a way of saying, you guys have been lecturing us for decades about the, the, how your system is always right and we are always wrong. Well, guess what? Liberal democracy, American style, has failed. That's what they're saying in Moscow. That's what they're saying in Ankara. That's what they're saying in Brazil. It's what they're certainly saying in China, is that the American system is broken. And the American model of liberal democracy in which everybody has a voice and everybody can say whatever they want, and there's no order and no hierarchy, look at the mess that you've created. And so we have to decide if you know we want to rebut that claim. We have to decide if our version of liberal democracy can succeed. And if, if we are a nation of laws, we have to enforce the laws. So I think the stakes here, again, are very high in deciding publicly what to make of this, because if not, we cannot go around the world and say, you know, people, you ought to have more human rights. You know, you ought to let your journalists out of jail. You know, you, you people should have uh, better rights for women. You know, you people should have uh, better public education for poor people. All of the things that liberal democracies say they value if we don't have a liberal democracy. So we are never going to have the high moral ground uh, ever again. Right now, it's, uh, it's Putin, Erdogan, uh, Xi. They feel they have the moral high ground. And boy, uh, while uh, the Secretary of State Pompeo is, um, is going on a little Twitter um, farewell address, taking pictures of himself, smiling about how great America's place in the world is, that is another version of an alternate reality. Right now, America's place in the world is totally in jeopardy. Let's remember that many claims of American moral superiority have been easily deflated uh, and often legitimately deflated uh, by our own inability to manage justice at home. Uh, so, you know, one of the reasons why the civil rights movement in the 1960s was so inspiring around the world was that it was clear to many people around the world that um, the United States might be waking up a little bit from its own delusions about how it has treated its own people and therefore the claims and efforts to fight for values like freedom and equality might actually mean something going forward. And as you pointed out earlier, well, it was a really short period of time when that we were able to get away with that. Uh, American moral superiority took some pretty big hits by the 2000s when we started a whole other set of uh, international interventions that uh, went terribly wrong. Uh, so it, it, it's a constant struggle to try to get our country to actually live up to its promise, but at least we have promise. And that makes a huge difference in the everyday life of America. Yeah, look, I mean, one of the things that we said at the beginning of our classes, we have a, a really incredibly infuriating contradiction in our in our history and in our system um, with our legacy of, of racism and slavery and inequality. But at the same time, we have these incredibly powerful and attractive and dynamic tools to fix it. That's right. We can fix it. We have the tools. We have the handbook. We can make this work. We have to make it work because m literally billions of people around the world want us to make it work. So we have a responsibility that's greater than just fixing our own democracy. It's fixing the idea of democracy, showing that it can work. So, I mean, I don't want to say I'm an optimist because I'm I, right now my head is completely scrambled. But I think 
the promise is there if we yeah. if we want to do the work. Uh, next, we'd like to invite Inika to ask a question. Inika, welcome to Democracy in Danger. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad I took this class. <laughs> um, it seems like a divide is forming between Republican officials like Mitt Romney and Mike Pence, who have taken a stand against Trump and his actions, uh, and officials like Ted Cruz and Kelly Loeffler, who objected to the Electoral College certification yesterday. They have given anti-democratic ideas mainstream establishment support. What do you think will happen to the Republican Party in the years to come following the Trump presidency? You know, I wrote a book about Dwight Eisenhower um, recently, so I've studied the Republican Party quite a bit lately. And of course, it's it's totally unrecognizable from from what it was in the 1950s and 60s, and indeed even up through the 1980s and 90s. But I I um I have a slightly different view on what you'll hear a lot in the media. A lot of what you've heard in the media is this is the end of the Republican Party. My view is this is the Republican Party. It is the Republican Party today. And although there are some voices within it, the Mitt Romneys, um, who are trying to gain traction and I think are looking better and better, the reality is the Republican Party of the 21st century is basically a white supremacist party masquerading as a so-called conservative party. But it's not conservative at all. It's quite radical. And it really wants to um, reframe the, the rules of our democracy to benefit a small minority of the population. So. I, I, I'm, I'm just letting it all hang out here because I'm, I'm very upset, but I believe that to be true. And I'm, I'm just very sorry because I have great admiration for many Republican leaders. I've written books about them in the past. But at this point, I think the, the party is, um, I want to come back to what I said at the beginning. When people tell you who they are, believe them. And if people in the Republican Party tell you that they want to overturn a Democratic uh, presidential election, you have to believe them that they are no longer believe in democracy. So the Republican Party, you may say, well, it has some soul searching to do. It's going to have to decide which direction it wants to go. It already decided. It already decided. It decided twice in 2016 and in 2020. And on January 6, 2021, it, it took another step towards uh, a kind of apartheid South Africa kind of rule that it would like to impose on this country. That's, that's really how I feel about it today. Next, we're going to hear from Hayes, another one of our students. Hayes, welcome to Democracy in Danger. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So just to pivot in kind of a different direction, um, you discussed earlier how this event, the so-called insurrection or coup, really was a distinctively American event that for many represents a violent manifestation, really, of backlash against civil rights movements. So my question is, how can we see parallels, a more recent historical comparison, if you will, with these sentiments and treatment of Black Lives Matter protests in D.C. I think we've all seen a number of comparisons of federal response to this so-called insurrection in comparison to the militaristic response to the majorly peaceful Black Lives Matter protest. So I think this moment will quickly be attributed to maybe, you know, radical, crazed citizens. But while these white bomb-toting, property-destroying domestic terrorists met little resistance, Black Lives Matter protests consistently faced police and military brutalization. So might this moment have just revealed how deeply institutionally ingrained racism is in this nation? And will MAGA's Make America Great Again be an antebellum rallying call? You know, I, I don't know that I have anything to add to your question because everything you said rings true to my observations, my experience, and my knowledge of what's been going on in this country. I mean, I know that I have had students, I have students who inhaled tear gas this summer, this past summer of 2020. They put their bodies on the line for justice in this country at a time when there was a, a rampant, possibly deadly pandemic, at a time when a lot of the country wasn't 
willing to hear them at a time when they knew that the very people they were protesting against were lined up on the streets next to them. And they did it anyway. And yes, I mean, it, it could not be clearer. If you look at the photographs of the level of preparation that federal officers and D.C. officers took for Black Lives Matter protests in the summer of 2020, the way that they lined up in formation in full armor on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, and compare that to what the Capitol Police looked like yesterday, uh, you know, you have to ask the hardest questions. Yeah, I, I think we do. And I, I'll just add one thought that came into my, my mind as I was looking at the faces of Republican leaders um, in the uh, Congress yesterday. They looked shocked and, and worried and anxious, and suddenly they felt vulnerable. Yeah. Suddenly they felt nervous, like maybe they were actually being targeted by right-wing violence. And for the moment, I could see on their faces a confusion, like, wait a minute, this is America. Uh, we're, we're, we're the leaders of the Republican Party. We're not supposed to be attacked by, by mobs. You know, the roles were reversed. And for the first time, they suddenly felt the kind, just, a, just an inkling of the kind of vulnerability that so many millions of Americans feel every day, just driving or jogging um, or shopping. And it struck me as just a moment of reckoning where they felt just a little tinge of fear, like maybe they, their protections were all starting to drop away. As it, as it turned out, everything was rapidly put back into place. And then they did what they um, came to do, which was continue to cast doubt on a democratic election. But there was a moment of fear and panic in their faces that I thought was extraordinary. Well, we're going to go to one more question, and it's Reed. Reed, welcome to Democracy in Danger. Thank you so much for having me. So clearly there is a great amount of stirred emotions and anger among white supremacists and victims of manipulation from white wing extremists. Um, with Trump having appealed to the sense of victimhood among white supremacists, he clearly is very central to the incitement of this violence. Yeah. So how can we go about seeking justice against those involved in this horrifying attack on American democracy while still attempting to diffuse the extreme sentiments of anger and doubt in our democratic systems. And I mean, is there even a way to do this beyond like just claiming they're racist? Like how can we diffuse this extreme anger that's very evident among these people who invaded the Capitol? Like they're still Americans. It's important to address that. So is it even possible to seek this justice without inciting more conflict and fear? And does that mean that these terrorists have won uh, in their goals? Well, their goals are to fundamentally change the workings of life in the United States of America. And in that sense, they are very far from their goals, fortunately. But they want to cause as much trouble in the process. And even if they don't meet their goals, the dissatisfaction for many of them is motivation enough. For many of them, the level of frustration is part of their identity. Feeling like a victim is part of their identity. And we can't be responsible for that. Like we can't say, oh, let's make them feel less like victims. We don't have the time for that. That's not our business. That's not our problem. I am not interested in pampering or indulging or pandering to the worst elements of American society, to people who dehumanize other people, to people who threaten my neighbors, to people who threaten my family. I am not interested in putting healing first 
Healing has to come after justice. We are so far from establishing the structures and functions and habits of justice in this country. We are so far from even recognizing and diagnosing the depth of the depravity and the injustice in this country. We are just starting that process, actually. I mean, we can reach back and read W.E.B. Du Bois and say, oh, he actually was onto it, right? We can read uh, James Baldwin and go, oh, yeah, he, he had it figured out. Look, at he could have been writing about 2020, 21. Uh, but that's only because we failed to take him seriously when he wrote, right? But we, we still have so much work to do on ourselves and on our institutions that I can't be bothered by trying to take care of them. Well, Steve, I think you've really helped me think about the priorities of the moment and the need for justice and confrontation with the events of January 6th, um, a sense of, um, of, of reminding this country that when we say we're a, a nation of laws, we really mean it. I think that has to come first. We must enforce the rule of law and confront the, the realities of the, the violence and the, and the violations of our democracy that occurred yesterday. And only then can we really begin to address um, the, the hurt that many different communities of our society feel. And maybe we can come together after that. But first, let's really do our, our darndest to ask our leaders to hold people accountable. Well, that's all the time we have for today on this special episode of Democracy in Danger. Please join us in the coming weeks as we put out new episodes. Our season two starts in February. In the meantime, please check out all of our past shows, especially the episodes that concern violent extremism and domestic terrorism. They could not be more relevant right now. And do stay in touch. You can shoot us a tweet at UVA Media Lab or send email to uvamedialab.virginia.edu. And make sure to visit our homepage. It's uvamedialab.virginia.edu slash democracy in danger. We've put together a virtual syllabus for every episode. And of course, please subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengold with help from Jennifer Ludovici. Our intern is Denzel Mitchell. Special thanks today to our wonderful students in our January term course, Democracy in Danger, and to the 13 teaching assistants who helped to make today possible. Support for Democracy in Danger comes from the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative and from the College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Deliberative Media Lab. It's distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective, the podcast network of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Siva Vadianathan. And I'm Will Hitchcock. Please, everybody, stay safe, stay healthy, and let's keep democracy alive. <laughs>